Uh, Let's stand together as we read these first six verses from Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. We'll dismiss the kindergarten through the second graders, through the back doors. Some of you are saying, good, now I've got some space to spread out here. For many years, Paul Harvey was one of the most familiar and trusted Voices on radio. And one of his most popular segments was called The Rest of the Story. And now you know the rest of the story. And the way Paul Harvey would tell the story it was it was about some famous person or some famous event, but he would give you the backstory. You you had only heard of the person sort of the once they became popular. And so what he would do is he'd weave this story, and then at the end you'd learn, oh, that's about this person or that event. And he would say, and now you know the rest of the story. Uh, a good example is uh, about a story about a guy named John Pemberton. John Pemberton lived in the 1800s, and he was a pharmacist. And so as a pharmacist, he liked to mix together different chemicals or different drugs in an effort to try to help people solve sort of common colds or headaches or anything like that. So he was very inventive, and he was trying to work out, trying to help people. And one of his experiments in effort to try to cure headaches, he he created syrup. And in this syrup, among other things, was caffeine and cocaine. And so he created this thing, and, you know, I've never had cocaine, but maybe that gets rid of your headache, and it was a great success. But that syrup eventually became known as Coca-Cola. And so now you know the rest of the story. So he gives you the back story, and you say, oh, I didn't know that, but now that I know it, then I'm going forward knowing that information. And so when we get to the book of Genesis, Genesis is like the backstory. It's like the foundation. And so since we've been going through the book of Genesis and we've talked about the four major events, the creation, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and then the four main characters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we've essentially got the backstory. We know the rest of the story because we know Genesis. And so then this fall or, or this spring and winter and spring, the next semester, we're hopefully, hopefully going to plow through the rest of the Bible. Obviously, at a pretty good speed, 
Because for four months we covered one book, and now for four or five months we're going to cover 65 books. So we're not going to be able to cover them all. But we're just trying to help you understand the story, help you understand the flow. Now that you have really a solid understanding of the backstory of Genesis, now you can say, okay, now that I have that, now I can move forward and see the big story that God's unfolding really from the very beginning to end, and it's the story of God's grace. And so you got to be ready. you got to strap on your seat belts because we've got a lot of, to cover, not just today, but every week we're going to be covering a lot of material. And the hope is by the time we get to June 1st or something like that, you'll say, okay, we didn't cover every book, but I, I get the different segments. I get the storyline. I, I get how this is leading us to Christ and then what he accomplished and then what does that mean for us as the New Testament church. That's, that's the hope. In the last two weeks, uh, Sam and then David did an excellent job bringing us to the end of Genesis with the person of Joseph. And you remember that the story was Joseph ended up down in Egypt. And Joseph's father was Jacob. And so Jacob was brokenhearted that he thought he'd lost his son. And then the son got miraculously found. And really the end of Genesis brings all of Jacob's sons down to Egypt. And that's what really Abraham's trying to help us understand is how did everyone get down to Egypt? Moses is writing this and he's trying to help the people, his congregation understand, well, how did our people get to Egypt? And the answer is they got down there because of Jacob got sold into slavery. Then there was a famine. And then, then I mean, Joseph got sold into slavery. There was a famine. And then Jacob brought his other sons down. Look with me at just backwards, uh, Exodus chapter one. And you'll see this, Exodus 1.1, these are the names of the sons of Israel, or Jacob, who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And then you see Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So that's 11. And then Joseph, who was already in Egypt, is 12. So Jacob has 12 sons. And these 12 sons become sort of the makeup of Israel. So if you have a Bible that has a Bible map in it, and you see the country of Israel, and there's what looks like counties outlined, and there's 12 of them, and they have a name in them, like Dan or Benjamin or Asher. There's all the 12 sons of Jacob. And, of course, there's a connection that we can't make today between the 12 sons of Jacob or the 12 sons of Israel and then the 12 apostles that Christ called. So we have these 12 sons, we have Jacob, we have Joseph down in Egypt. And when you get to uh, chapter 50 of Genesis, so just flip back from where you were in Exodus 1, just one chapter. This is the very end, verse 24. Joseph looks at his family and he says this, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph, he's about to die in Egypt. But this is the promise he makes. I, but God will visit you. And when he does, he's going to bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham. Remember back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham's going to have a new land and he's going to be blessed. And then he's going to be a blessing to all nations. And he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Jacob or Joseph dies. 
Now, if you were one of the brothers of Joseph, and you're in the family of Joseph, and you're sitting by Joseph's bedside as he's dying, and he says this, he makes this promise, hey, I want you to know that God is faithful, he's going to bring you out of Egypt, and he's going to bring you back into the promised land, the promised land that he had given to, to promise to uh, Abraham, what might have you thought? What might have you expected? Well, okay, God's going to send somebody to bring us out. And the way God's been operating is just by generation. So it was Abraham, then it was Isaac, then it's Jacob, now it's Joseph. So, I mean, maybe it's one of us or maybe it's in the next generation. But there's somebody here that's going to lead us out of, out of, out of Egypt. And we're going to follow that person kind of like we've been following our fathers. And, and they're going to bring us into the promised land. But but what's helpful and necessary for you to to realize is that when you turn from Genesis chapter 50 over to Exodus chapter 2, which is where I want you to turn to, Exodus 2.23, and it says this, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, And cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now when you turn your one page from Genesis chapter 50 to Exodus chapter 2, that's 430 years. You see, if I had been by Joseph's bedside... I would have been thinking it would be four or five years. But when you turn this page, it's 17 or 20 generations. It's 430 years later now before we get Moses on the scene. And and this isn't the main point of the sermon, but I just think understanding that is staggering. And, And I want to ask this question, would it be okay with you... If you had been one of the people that was born right here. I mean, you were born, you lived, you got married, you had a family, and you died. But you're in this page. We, we don't see your name anywhere. We don't know your family. Nobody, no, nothing gets written about you. Is that okay? Is it okay if God makes a promise... But he decides to fulfill that promise 430 years later. If he tells you, I'm going to do something, is it okay if he does it 430 years later and nobody remembers you personally? Is it okay if he takes your one life of faith like a raindrop and adds it to hundreds or thousands of other lives of faith over 430 years, and then when he's ready, he bursts onto the scene and he just spills out grace in, in ways that are spectacular. Is it okay if you're just one of those raindrops in one of those pages? Or do you and your generation, do you have to be spectacular right now? You've got to be noticed right now. You, you don't want to be here. See, that's not the main point of the sermon, but it's helpful to understand how God's working over time. 
And, and when you dive into Moses, you may think, well, that's how everything works. Well, this is 17 generations of how it worked. One family being faithful, living faithfully, living, getting married, having children, dying, and the next generation. That's how most people spend their lives. And that at different points in history, God takes your little raindrop of life and faith, my little raindrop of life and faith, and in ways we can't even imagine, in certain times that are totally up to him, he busts open. And grace spills out because of this added momentum. But see, you, you may be one of the little raindrops that's not, not remembered. Is, is that okay? It really doesn't matter if it's okay. I'm just trying to help you ask the question. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, his treasure, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. See, right now, and it may not feel like it to you, but he may be in some deep mine forming some great jewel. And because of your life of faith, because of your, your perseverance, just at some other point it comes out. And when you can look back, you'll say, oh, I'm so glad I was part of that 17 generations. But he wants you to just remain faithful now. Our role, our, our command, our, our plan is just to remain faithful. Just to be a part of a generation that continues to remain faithful. Whether we happen to be in this generation or we have to be the part of the people who walked across the Red Sea. Either way, the goal is try to remain faithful. Now, we turn, by the time we get to Exodus 19, which is where we're, we're coming to, you've already had Moses who's come to Pharaoh, brought the people out of uh, slavery through these miraculous events, the, the ten plagues, the, the death of the firstborn, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, the celebration as they get across the Red Sea safely. And now when we reach Exodus chapter 19, Moses has brought the, the Israelites out of Egypt and to a particular mountain, very special mountain called Mount Sinai. And this is where Moses speaks with God and God gives him the Ten Commandments, which is uh, Exodus chapter 20, just the next chapter over. And one scholar describes this particular passage, passage, chapter 19, this way. Sinai constitutes one of the greatest defining moments in the history of redemption. These words, these words are at the heart of the Old Testament, really the heart of everything else in the Old Testament. Indeed, everything in human history can be explained in terms of the covenant relationship described in these few verses. Wow. Everything can be described just in these few verses. So I'm saying, okay, that's true. What do I need to know from these few verses? I'm, I'm looking, saying, what are sort of the key components that I need to draw out? And there are four of them, and I want to talk about those this morning. So number one, and they're all just verses four, five, and six. You can see them very clearly. Number one, one key thing that we want to understand, the very first word God says in verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. 
So this is what he's telling uh, Moses. I want you to make sure the people understand this, that the people remember that the people know they've seen it for themselves, what God did to the Egyptians. And so what happened when he saved the Israelites out of Egypt? You realize Egypt was a polytheistic nation. So they had all kinds of gods. And at the very top of the heap is Pharaoh. But there were gods like the sun god or the river god or the frog god or the locust god. And guess what he did with each one of the ten plagues? He deconstructed that god. He wanted to take every god away from the Egyptians and say to the people of Israel, there's only one god and this isn't it. It's not any of these other gods. It's not Pharaoh. It's me. And at the very end, when Pharaoh charges into the Red Sea, guess what happens? He drowns. And God is drowning all of the other false gods of the world. And they got to see it firsthand. So they can't forget. I mean, it's this most vivid illustration. You're standing at the waterside and and lapping up next to you are these dead bodies of the Egyptians. You can't possibly forget. So the very first thing God wants these people to understand and for us to understand is that he himself has done something to the enemy. And this is why, and we won't turn there, this is why Numbers 14, just make a note of this, is so painful. Because God has saved these people, he's brought them out of slavery, he's brought them across the Red Sea, he's brought them through the desert, and he's brought them right to the very front door of the promised land. They're knocking on the front door. And God's just about ready to open the door and they're going to come into the promised land. And guess what these people do? These people who stood on the edge of the Red Sea, you know what they said? Let's go back. And they looked at Moses and said, can we get another leader to take us back? I have no doubt that somebody here, some bodies, you want to go back. You know firsthand what God has done. You've experienced, you know it, you've, you've felt it. But, but life, life's come along, fears have crept in, anxiety has come on. The world shows up in its neon sign saying, oh, this is bigger and better. And you're sitting here, maybe you're sitting here as a college student. And you say, I want to go back. I want to follow after the ways of the world. I feel this massive gravitational pull. I'm tired of coming to church. I'd rather have another leader to take me back. And I want to implore you, don't go back. I felt that way. Every believer here has felt that way. But please, don't go back. You've seen it firsthand. He has single-handedly crushed your greatest enemy. He has trampled over death by death itself. And so don't go back. There's nothing else that can produce or provide what Christ can provide. So please, please don't go back. Second thing, notice this, I bore you on eagle's wings. What a great picture. And I bore you on eagle's wings and I, I brought you where? To the final destination, me. I'm the final dwelling place. I, I, I not only crushed your enemies, I actually picked you up and I, I brought you all the way to myself. 
If you're a Hobbit fan, how many Hobbit fans do we have in here? Remember how many times they got saved by eagles? You remember that? And Tolkien picks up on this uh, imagery. Remember that one particular time, the, the dwarfs and, and Gandalf and uh, uh, who's the main guy? Bilbo, sorry. They're, they're, they're climbing up these trees. Remember, they're trying to get away from these dogs and all this kind of stuff. And the trees are falling off the cliff. And Gandalf blows on a butterfly. Remember that? Sorry if you don't know this movie, but it's a really awesome moment. And, and oh, everybody's about ready to fall off the cliff. And then, and then when they let go, what happens? These huge eagles come down and they rescue them. Take them to safety. See, what's God doing? He's, he's not only crushing your enemy, which would be awesome all by itself, but then he picks you up and he brings you all the way to himself. He bears you up all the way home. And so when you read through just this one verse, you see that that salvation is is very one sided. God sees his people. God moves on behalf of his people. He crushes the enemy. He frees them from slavery and certain death. And then he delivers the people to himself. See, whenever and however you arrive to God, you always arrive by by grace. You never get there on your own. It doesn't matter how you have arrived, and we all arrive in different ways, but we all arrive on wings like eagles. God himself has crushed our enemy. He has picked himself up, and he brings them all to himself. So at the very end, all glory goes to, it goes to God. Because he's done it all. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. And so nobody can boast. Unless you just boast in Christ. So, so you need, I need to hear you say, you got that foundation. Amen? You got that? Because we're going to turn a corner in verse 5, in the third of our four points. But if you don't have that foundation, when you see verse 5, therefore... You, you, you might get messed up. We need to understand the order. So God, it's all by grace. Now let's look at verse 5. This Now that salvation is secured, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. So now I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to help you understand what obedience is. See, the law is instructing these people on how to live. They have spent 430 years in Egypt. They spent 430 years hearing the false advertisement from Pharaoh. So now they come over here and they say, well, we don't trust in Pharaoh anymore. But how are we supposed to live? And God says, great question. I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a new playbook. I don't want you to operate out of the same old playbook. I want to give you this, this new playbook. And so that playbook is called the law. If you read one more chapter, there's 20 command, or there's 10 commandments in chapter 20, the 10 commandments. If you read through the book of Leviticus, Leviticus, this is the book of the law. 613 laws in total. So if you have any questions about anything in your life, there's a law. It helps you know how you're supposed to live. And I want to just make several comments here about the law. It's very important just to understand the first thing that happens and it gets totally secured by God is salvation. After salvation, then he gives us the law to help us know, well, how do I live for God? First observation, try to imagine the mess we'd be in if this were in a different order. 
What if God had come to the people and come to Moses and said, Moses, this is what I want you to say. I want you to say, thus says the Lord, if you obey me and fully keep my 613 laws, then you will see me move. How many would cheer for that? Uh, No, nobody cheering. See, he doesn't say that. If you obey me, then I will carry you on eagle's wings. See, if that would have been the case, there would have never been an exodus. There would have never been a single person saved if that was the case. So we can't get that out of order. But praise God, that's not the order. Sovereign grace always comes before human responsibility. Sovereign grace always comes before human responsibility. That's it's one key observation when we think about the law. Number two, a, a second observation just about the law. Then that grace always demands obedience. Sovereign grace always comes before human responsibility. But that sovereign grace does always demand obedience. God sets people free not to do whatever they want. He sets people free to be what they were created to be. You're not set free and say, well, now I can do whatever I want. No, now you can be who you were meant to be. And that is, you're meant to be the image of God. You're the image bearer of God himself in a very unique way. That's the way we were all designed to be the image of God. And this is a biblical pattern that happens. Uh, uh, Last year, we went through the book of Colossians. And the first part of the book of Colossians is this very high uh, level thinking about who Christ is and what the gospel means. And then when you get to chapter 3, uh, it kind of comes down to, to, um, to ground level. And Paul says, now that you understand the gospel, now I'm going to give you some instructions on how to live. And the, and the imagery that he has is how to walk. That's the word he uses. When I was maybe in fifth grade, I don't really remember, I had a cousin who was a teenager, high schooler. And he had the coolest walk. I mean, I don't know what it was. But I, we were at like this amusement park and I was back behind him just going, How's he, I mean, what's he's got some kind of cool looking walk. And I just as a fifth grader, I'm sure I look, I look like a dope for, without even trying to do that. I, but with trying to do that, really, I'm just trying to mimic my cousin's walk. I'm just trying to walk like he walked. And Paul's saying God's walking in a certain way. And now you need to walk in that way. And there's certain things you need to add to your walk and certain things you need to to get rid of. And so he says this, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your old way of walking. Lust and greed and anger and rage. See, you used to walk in these ways, but you've taken those things off. You've put on a new self. And listen to what he says. You're being renewed in the image of Christ. See, when you come to Christ, you get a new playbook. You get the law, and it helps you know how to walk. And, and as you walk according to what God has to say, then, then you look more and more like Christ himself. Grace always demands obedience. That's the second thing I want to say about the law. The third thing I want to say is keeping the law is not and never was an alternative way to God. Let me say this again, because this gets really confusing sometimes for people. Keeping the law was never intended to be an alternative way to God. It's not like Moses came and said, hey, you guys, you can't figure out how to get there. 
So I'm going to give you this law, and if you just run by the playbook, then you get to God. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, God already got you to himself. And so now that you're with God, this is how you're supposed to live your life. So, so keeping the law is not an alternative way to God. God calls Israel to keep the law, not to become God's people, but because they're already God's people. See, you don't, you don't get, you, you don't get God by obeying the law. You've already got God, and because you have God, then you have a hope of obeying the law. Now you have a hope of, of walking in a new way. And so sometimes a question comes up like this. How did people in the Old Testament get saved? You ever thought about that question, asked that question? And the answer is pretty simple, grace. Everybody in the every every human being who ever gets saved, they get saved by grace. Once Adam and Eve fell in Genesis chapter 3, guess what the only way to God was for God to get to you? There was no other plan. There's one overarching story in the whole Bible, and it's the story of grace. It's grace from the beginning, and it's grace all the way to the end. It's not like the Old Testament is, well, they got to God by the law, and the New Testament, we get to God by grace. That's not true. That's erroneous thinking. You get to God by God crushing your enemies, picking you up, and bringing him to yourself. It's all about God. Whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's all by grace. If you're keeping score, this is the fourth thing I want to say and the last thing I want to say about the law. All right? I told you it was going to be harder for you to be a listener. Obedience to the law of God is a gift. It's not a burden. Moses has solidified salvation. Now he, God's coming in saying, therefore, now that you know salvation, this is how you be obedient. This is how you become obedient. And when he gives the law, it's a gift, not, it's not a burden. Remember this, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who what? Who doesn't walk, doesn't sit, doesn't stand in these places with the wicked. But instead, what does it say? His delight is in doing whatever he wants. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And guess what he does? He meditates on it every day and every night. Why? It's a gift. It's a great, great gift. I don't know how to live. I need God to come in and say, here are the boundaries. Here's the pavement. Here are the stones to walk on. Go in this way. And I go, great. I'm so glad you helped me out. So, so it's a gift. But my guess is, is that most people think of the law and they go, Ugh, so restrictive, so burdensome, so narrow. It's keeping me from all the fun things I want to do. That's typically how we think about the law. And every illustration is imperfect, but let's try to think about volleyball for a second. You know, girls' volleyball it has sort of blown up here in the last five, five years or so. Super popular. Sand volleyball around here, very popular. And I know a lot of you all play. But you, you know, there's quite a few rules in volleyball. And I don't know if you know this, but there's only so many people that can be on the court at one time. And then you only get so many hits. You know, when the ball comes across the net, you only get so many hits. And the ball can't touch the ground. And then there's these lines 
that ball can't go outside the line. And then as a player, you can't touch the net. And I'm starting to think, this, this sounds burdensome now. This didn't sound like very much fun. I mean, if I were playing volleyball, this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to kick the person underneath the net. So when he goes up to spike it, well, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Or since I don't get off the ground very high, what I would like is when I, a perfect spike is set up, I'd like my teammate to pull the net down and I'd spike it and I wouldn't have to leave it on the ground. That'd be awesome. I mean, that would make volleyball fun, wouldn't it? Actually, it wouldn't. It'd be cool for me for a few seconds, but it wouldn't be fun. It's only fun if you really play inside the boundaries of the game. The boundaries actually produce joy in you playing the game. If you could just play the game any way you want and everyone got to, it'd just be chaotic. But see, there's boundaries set, and you, it actually increases your joy. And so the law of God is this tremendous gift that as you, as you obey the law of God, you don't get salvation. You get joy. You get joy because you get closer to the Lord and what He wants you to do, and you become more of what you're meant to be. I'm more joyful when I'm more like the image of Christ and less like the image of the old Paul. When I become a lot more like the image of the old Paul, I become a lot less joyful. So I run in the paths of your command, the psalmist said. And you set my heart free. We're free when we're inside the law. It's a gift. It's, it's not a burden. Let me get to my last point. So this is my fourth point in my whole outline. It's verses 5 and 6. God's produced the law. And he says this, you need to obey my voice, you need to keep my command, because you're a treasured possession. And then he wants to inform them, all the earth is mine, that's the end of verse 5. And you shall be, this is your purpose now, now that you're walking with the Lord, you've gotten saved, you're walking with the Lord, you're going to be a kingdom of priests, very interesting, and a holy nation. So this is your purpose, you're, you're going to be a kingdom of priests, and you're going to be a holy nation. See, God's attention is on Israel, but his intention is for the whole world. I'm giving you special attention, but I want you to know as I do it, my intention is to reach the whole world. And my plan is to do it through you. And so you you remember uh, how God did this. He wants his people to stand in the gap. They're going to be a priest. A priest is a, a mediator who somebody stands between God and the people. And he wants he wants the this nation now to plead for plead to God on behalf of the people. And then he wants also the nation to plead to the people on behalf of God. So you're standing in the middle. You're standing in this gap. You're standing in dark places trying to pray to God for the people. And then you're trying to pray to the people for God to come down. You're, you're standing in that middle place. And you know that it's a perfect illustration of how God planted Israel. And we talked about this about a month ago. He planted them in this little narrow strip called Israel. And on top of Israel and on the bottom of Israel are these huge world powers, Egypt and Babylon or Assyria. And those two countries were going to either have to fight with each other or trade with each other. And when they did, guess what they had to do? They had to go through Israel. They had to go through a kingdom of priests. 
So no matter how they were living their lives, they were always going to be running across these people who were standing in the middle and trying to shine, trying to shine their light in a dark place. And there's tons of illustrations for this in the Bible. And let me just pick out a couple that you might remember. Abraham. Remember Abraham and God comes down and he's going to destroy Sodom. Remember that? Genesis chapter 18. Sodom is one of the most wicked cities. Sodom and Gomorrah, one of the most wicked cities that we could think of. And what does Abraham do? Genesis 18 for 12 verses. He pleads to God on behalf of Sodom. Would you please do it a different way? If there's 100 people, if there's 50 people, if there's 40 people, if there's anybody there who could be saved, would you not destroy? And, and God says, okay, I, I'll, I'm in a very unusual passage. He actually negotiates with God down to 10 people. Now, it turns out there weren't 10 people there. But you see what Abraham was doing? He, he's, he knows the wickedness of the city. He could have said, like you might have said, or I might have said, yeah, God, they're wicked. About time you showed up, let's blast them. Aren't you glad you don't have a priest like that? That when you're wicked, somebody says, let's get rid of this person. See, Abraham is this perfect picture. But what about Jonah? Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. It is a wicked city. They do not know me. And what does Jonah do? I despise the Ninevites. And I will not go and tell them about you. I'm going to run away. And even when God brings them back miraculously, and he says, repent, you know what Jonah is? He's angry about it. See, which one are you? Peter says, now the church is a... Is a a holy nation, a priesthood of all believers. So now we as the church, we're the priesthood. We're not saving anybody. We're just standing in between. We're talking to people about God. We're talking to God about people. But, but which kind of person are you? God, I hate these people. They're destroying my country. They're destroying my life. They're destroying our nation. They're destroying. Can you just wipe them out? Is that what you're like? Or I know what they're like. I used to be like that. Please save them. Please use me in any way. I'll stand here. I'll, I'll pray for them. I'll love them. I'll, I'll give my life away. But please r- relent from your wrath. And, and, and is there any way you can save them? Is that the kind of person you are? Is that the kind of church we are? See, when you think about the prayer cards that will be next week, it it might be, I want to be more like Abraham and less like Jonah. Who who has God put on your heart to say, I I don't have any natural affinity to these people. I don't necessarily like this person or this group. But I I want to be a person who stands in between and and I try to help them see God. I, I try to plead to God on their behalf. At Christ Community Church, we're, we're teaching the Bible. That's, that's what we've been doing the last 35 minutes. Maybe more than you'd want in a 35-minute time. But we think teaching the Bible transforms people's lives. Because we've been transformed. And when that happens, when we begin to walk in obedience with God, we reach out and, and touch the world. 
So for you, maybe you're here saying, you know what? I really never understood grace. I thought I was supposed to be better than most and I get in or something like that. I've thought that before. Maybe this is the day of really your salvation. You really understand salvation by grace. Amen. Or maybe many of us are in this place and, wow, I'm a priest. I'm supposed to stand in dark places. Remember Paul says this to the Philippians? You stand out in a dark place. You're shining like a star in the universe because you're holding out the word of life. 2016, who, who you, where, where are the dark places are you standing? Who are you holding out life to? See, Craig and Allie, they can say, well, it's going to be Romania, October 2016. But not everybody's going to go to Romania. Maybe you just need to teach in the third grade class. That's a great place to hold out the word of life. Maybe, sorry if you're a third grader, I'm not demeaning you, I'm just saying. Maybe it's with the tutoring program. Maybe it's just with your neighbor. You just despise them and wish they would move instead of praying for them. Let's pray together. Lord, there's, there's so much here possible to even uh, get to the top of the iceberg here. But sovereignly, you work through your word and pray that if this is the day of salvation, somebody would say, I finally understood grace. For those who have understood grace, that it's, it's time to walk in, a, in your ways, to walk in your paths. To not go back to the world, but instead go into the world and hold out the word of life. Would you, would you speak now? Would you challenge your people, I pray? Lord, take what we have and use it for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.